in the 18th century. One of the questions that spread throughout Europe was, would the great cultural themes be lost in this new upstart nation called America, where everything was named after something in Europe, New York, even New England. And one of the questions was, what would happen to the great musical tradition of Europe? And I'm sure that all of Europe sighed a relief when a man working by himself in the basin area of new Orleans wrote the following piece of music. My bucket's got a hole in it. <laughs> and, they, and they knew that the tradition would be safe. <laughs> And so as the other churches sing the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah, I thought we could open this service with a new rendition of My Bucket's Got a Hole in It. <laughs> this one is called My Ego's Got a Hole in It. <laughs> and I can't get mad no more. So if you'll join me with that, <laughs> My ego's got a hole in it. My ego's got a hole in it. My ego's got a hole in it. And I can't get mad no more. Now, come on, is this the great European tradition? <laughs> Handel's Messiah? <laughs> Let's try that again. <laughs> My ego's got a hole in it. My ego's got a hole in it. My ego's got a hole in it. And I can't get mad no more. <laughs> Once upon a time, in a famous university in an eastern city, university by the name of Columbia, in a building that was financed by grants from the CIA. On a typewriter donated by the CIA in the largest college of physicians and surgeons in the world, Presbyterian Medical Center.
teaching hospital of Columbia University. There worked a man by the name of William Thetford. Not only was he a full professor of medical psychology, he was head of the graduate students at Presbyterian Medical Center, taught abnormal psychology, and was co-editor of the Journal of Abnormal Psychology, one of the most prestigious journals in the field of psychology. And his research assistant was a woman by the name of Helen Schuchman, Ph.D., also a tenured professor at Columbia University. One night, Helen called Bill and said, I've gone crazy. Now, you remember, they, they both taught abnormal psychology. He said, well, what's happened? She said, well, every time I try to go to sleep, I hear a voice. He said, what does it say? This is the Course in Miracles. Please take notes. He said, well, he said, I've seen you take uh, very good shorthand in staff meetings and uh, why don't you just take down what it says and bring it in tomorrow and we'll take a look at it. And if it's crazy, we'll tear it up and won't tell anyone. So he didn't want to lose his research assistant. So that satisfied her. And the next morning, what you have in your hand is what she brought in to his office. Let me read that. This is a course in miracles. It is a required course. Only the time you take it is voluntary. Free will does not mean that you can establish the curriculum. It means only that you can elect what you want to take at a given time. The course does not aim at teaching the meaning of love, for that is beyond what can be taught. It does aim, however, at removing the blocks to the awareness of love's presence, which is your natural inheritance. The opposite of love is fear. But what is all-encompassing can have no opposite. This course can therefore be summed up very simply in this way. Nothing real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. Herein lies the peace of God. Well, he read that over and he said, uh, well, I'm not sure exactly what that means. It seems it's, it's very lovely. Uh, I don't think that's schizophrenic dissociation. Uh, and you say that this is an internal voice. It didn't seem like an external voice. And she said, yes, it was a dictation. He said, well, from whom was this message coming? She said, Jesus. Well, I don't think you're crazy. <laughs> but Helen had a lot to say about that because she had been raised in an orthodox Jewish setting, had become an atheist very young in her life, 
And to her, this was pure pornography. And she was just wasn't sure she wanted to have anything to do with this. And so for ten years, early in the morning, before any of the other professors or students got there, during the lunch hour, with the doors locked and the shades pulled down, there sat Helen and Bill, two professors at Columbia University, both teaching abnormal psychology, one of them rejecting articles for the Journal of Abnormal Psychology because they weren't scientific enough, reading and typing up channeled material, then going out and teaching abnormal psychology as if nothing had happened. And Helen was very angry about this. She didn't know why this was happening. Bill's function seemed to be to keep encouraging her, telling her that he didn't know what was happening, but this did not fit craziness. But she would come in and she'd have fits. And she'd say things like, if it makes one mistake in grammar, it's finished. <laughs> and another time she came in and she tore up the manuscript. So I'm not going to have anything to do with this anymore. This is crazy. Well, he had, he had hidden a carbon copy. She found that the voice was very, very patient. It always waited until it would not disturb her if she were in a staff meeting, and it was a very boring staff meeting. Everybody would think she was taking notes, but she wasn't. She was on a bus, along would come the voice. She received a telephone call in the middle of this. The voice would stop. And if she revolted for two or three days, that was just fine. When she was ready again, it would pick up right in the middle of the sentence where it left off. Because she certainly was not going to go back and read what had been written. Helen died beginning of this year. This whole thing had started in 1965. It was finished by 1975 with some <coughs> large gaps between volumes. They never knew when the course would be finished except when uh, the manual ended. Then it did seem clearly that it ended. But they thought it ended after each book. She died at the beginning of this year. As a matter of fact, she had predicted that she would die in her 72nd year, which she did. And even... Up to the very time she died, she never accepted a course of miracles. You may know a woman here by the name of Yuta von Gendorf. She works, where does she work? At the Morning Birth. I met uh, her husband uh, a few years ago, and he had been in Tiburon, California, working with uh, Jerry Jampolsky. Jerry founded a center 
called the Center for Attitudinal Healing. 60 Minutes did a lovely segment on it, which will be repeated December the 25th at 7 p.m. No, no, no. Is it 25th or 27th? It's on a Sunday. That's right. It would be on a Sunday, wouldn't it? All right. It's going to be repeated. So it'd be wherever the Sunday is. 25th or 27th? 27th. It won an Emmy. That segment. Oh, excuse me. I'm I'm sorry. I, I, I'm I'm getting two things mixed up. The Phil Donahue special. Phil Donahue's first nighttime special was on the Center for Attitudinal Healing. You may have seen it. Had children with cancer on it. It won an Emmy. That's what will be repeated on Sunday. The 60-minute segment um, was also very lovely, and he's done a number of other things. The Center for Attitudinal Healing is based on uh, Course in Miracles. Jerry is a uh, psychiatrist. He's an MD. And that's why the little basket over there is called Jerry's Box, because he doesn't charge his patients you ever heard of an MD psychiatrist who doesn't charge his patients? Plus, he doesn't charge any child that comes to the center or any parent or anyone who receives training there. No service is, is charged for. In fact, he gives all the kids a free meal. Well, Adolphus had gone to him as a psychiatrist. And when uh, Gail and I met him, he was telling this story. He had gone to Jerry, and Jerry had told him about A Course in Miracles, and uh, he, he wasn't sure about this Course in Miracles thing. Uh, and he was working with Jerry over a period of several weeks, and one day Jerry said, Helen's in town. She's visiting here. Would you like to meet her? And she said, well, he said, well, yes, I think I would. And he thought he was going to meet a Christ-like figure in white robes or something. Came into this room, Jerry's apartment. There was this little old Jewish woman. Went over and sat down next to her. And uh, she said, oh, I understand you're studying A Course in Miracles. He said, yes. She said, well, I think it's all poppycock. <laughs> Well, that was typical of Helen. He never, never did uh, accept it. Uh, she just did her part in receiving it. I don't know what that means, but that's just the way it happened. So let's look at this, and I'll tell you some of the things that I see here. As I said last time, it has been my experience that the truth is so simple that it can be found in, in its entirety in any section and in any lesson, not only in A Course in Miracles, but in a thousand other books, songs, and so forth. There's nothing difficult about the truth. The difficulty is in our accepting it, our allowing ourselves 
to hear the very simple thing that God has said to us over and over and over again for how many thousands of years, we don't know. We just we just had some few books that have come down through the ages and it's always been there. And that is true of this introduction also. The first that this is a course in miracles. That's an unusual thing to say. I've always thought of a miracle as something that was uh, sort of accidental and weird, something that was um, uh, supernatural or preternatural. A course in miracles. Of course, never have we been told that. Always we've been told that happiness, that abundance, that healing, that joy is reasonable, it's ours. The universe wants nothing more than for us to be happy. And of course, that first sentence implies that. Reasonable uh, and expected and natural. And so this is a, a course in miracles. How can everything in our experience turn to a miracle? It's quite simple, says a course in miracles. time you take it is voluntary. Now this is another thing that we've been told over and over again, that the only power that we have left in this world because of the extraordinary limitations that we have chosen is the power of choice. But we do have that. We can choose conflict or peace. We can choose suffering or healing. We can choose to bless and uplift. Or we can choose to make people unhappy and to take away their happiness. That's the choice we have. And what is it that we choose between when we choose between conflict and peace, between love and fear? Well, what we are told in the Course in Miracles and every place else is that we choose between reality and unreality. Paul said, faith is the evidence of things not seen. It's the evidence of things not seen. What is it that's not seen? That's the question. And can it be seen? And Jesus said over and over and over again, having eyes ye see not. What does that mean? It means that there is something else all around us that we are not seeing. And if we open our eyes, we will see it. And nothing more than that is required. And how do we open our eyes? We simply choose to do so. Nothing more than that. We don't believe that. We think it's endlessly complicated. But it's not. We do, in fact, get exactly what we choose. And there is never any question as to what we are getting because what we see is what we're getting. And so if we see a world 
are misusing us, then that's what we have chosen. And that is what we see. Fear is seeing what can be threatened. Because the last two sentences there, it says, nothing real can be threatened. Nothing unreal exists. So if we're seeing what can be threatened, we're going to be scared. And who of us is not seeing what can be threatened most of the time? Our spouse will die. Our parents will die. Our children will die. Our we will die. And people will get sick. And governments will fall. And the earth will open up. And everything that we see begins deteriorating as soon as it's made. What that the body eyes sees is not threatened. It dissolves into ashes in our hands. What can we build in this world that is not threatened? And we build and we build and we build our reputation. We build our business. We build up the employees. We build our house. We buy more land. We put furniture in it. We, we, we build constantly. All around we're building. And it's taken away. Either sooner or later. It's all taken away. And we know this. It's just a question of time. We hope we can hang on to most of it until we die. But then we die and even that is taken away. And even the body that is buried is taken away. And we wonder why we have this anxiety. We wonder why we go through the day anxious. When any friend can desert us at any moment. Obviously, we are afraid because everything we see is threatened, including our own health, our physical beauty, if we thought we had it, our quick mind, our memory. It's all threatened. But is that all there is? Time and time again we have been told, no, that is not all there is. As a matter of fact, what you're seeing endures for but a moment and is not real at all. Now, last Thursday, we uh, sang, Row, row, row your boat. Gently down the stream. And it ends with, Life is but a dream. This whole miserable picture is but a dream. That's why the mountain can be picked up and tossed into the ocean. So, what is peace? And where does it lie? And how does it come to us? It's so simple. Simply by seeing something other than what our body's eyes are seeing. And this something, with a capital S, surrounds us. It sits by our bed at night. It fills our mind as we wake in the morning. It shines from the eyes of everyone we meet. It turns our children and the little gurus. It makes our parents acceptable. It makes the breeze sing. Suddenly we hear it. And the birds and the rustling of the autumn leaves. How many days did we go before we heard 
the song of God and the wind that just passed through the leaves. It turns the entire earth to music when we see this evidence of things not seen. And we are at peace. You cannot have even the slightest glimpse of this without feeling a deep, deep peace and a certainty as to how all things will turn out. You cannot look back on your life without seeing how everything that happened set into place. That none of it was an accident. And so the workbook simply says to us over and over again, that we're already there, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That, uh, as Joe Lynn says, God did not make junk. That's a fact. But our body's eyes say, that's all he made, just junk. Junk. It gets old and weak and feeble and loses everything. Is that what God made? Is that all we are? No, says the Course in Miracles. Love is your natural inheritance. It is the very fabric of your mind. And the only way to experience it is just not interfere. If you will just not seek and seek and seek that which can be threatened, then the kingdom of heaven will be there. And none of your friends will be seen to desert you. And nothing will be seen to die. And you will know the outcome. And so let me turn to the introduction of the workbook. Because next Sunday what we'll do is we'll take the first lesson of the workbook and the first ten principles of the 50 principles of miracles. So the text starts out with 50 principles of miracles. We'll take the first 10 and we'll take the first lesson in the workbook. And as I said last Sunday, if you don't have the set and uh, you don't want to uh, buy one, all you have to do is attend this church for seven years and you will have done the course. <laughs> It's a one-year course, but you see, we're taking it a week at a time rather than a day at a time. So let me read this. You don't have this before you. Let me read you this introduction. This is to the workbook, the second volume. A theoretical foundation, such as the text provides, is necessary as a framework to make the exercises in this workbook meaningful. Yet it is doing the exercises that will make the goal of the course possible. An untrained mind can accomplish nothing. It is the purpose of this workbook to train your mind to think along the lines the text suggests. The exercises are very simple. They do not require a great deal of time and it does not matter 
where you do them. They need no preparation. The training period is one year. The exercises are numbered from 1 to 365. Do not undertake to do more than one set a day. The workbook is divided into two main sections. The first dealing with the undoing of the way you see now, and the second with the acquisition of true perception. Let me stop right there just for a second. Because I think this is a point that causes a lot of people to stress. Although we have been told this over and over again. There are two parts to a miracle. Or a healing. Or a satari. Uh, or a revelation. Or whatever you wish to call it. There, there are two steps. One is we must see what has no value as having no value. Now, this is the part we resist. We don't think we're supposed to look at what has no value. And it is a little distressing to do that, although obviously the intention is not distress. So the child, for example, who has an imaginary playmate, must look at the imaginary playmate and see that this is not giving him the companionship that he wishes. And in comparing that with real companionship, he begins to lose interest in his imaginary playmate. So first we see the murderer within. And indeed, there is a murderer within us. We do, in fact, misuse all of our relationships, our possessions. We misuse our conversations at people's houses. We misuse the person standing before us. We use them to breathe life into our ego. We tell them the prideful things that we have done. Guess what happened to me? And we use this person to breathe life into our ego. And we wonder why we feel a little guilty as we're doing this. Well, but we return it, we breathe life into their ego. Well, what have you done recently? I told you, I just bought a new Mercedes. What have you bought recently? Well, uh, there's a new brand of cat sand out. I mean, they haven't got anything to come up with. Or if they do, I just bought three Mercedes. We feel murdered. Right? Because the whole thing was a comparison, and we were misusing the whole conversation. Just think what we could have done with that conversation. We could have had a V8. <laughs> with, the, with the exception of the review periods, each day's exercises are planned around one central idea. Now, this is another thing I've noticed, and I bet a lot of you have noticed. Have you noticed that God sort of changes the lesson? There's sort of one thing that we're working on for a day or so, and then suddenly it doesn't work anymore. There's this new thing we need to learn. Can't go back, and that, that particular sentence or idea or whatever that was so inspiring to us a day ago or a week ago, it's flat now. Because now we're supposed to take the next step, which means we have to forget everything we thought we knew, open up and take the next step. 
followed by a description of the specific procedures by which the idea for the day is to be applied. The purpose of the workbook is to train your mind in a systematic way to a different perception of everyone and everything in the world. The exercises are planned to help you generalize the lessons so that you will understand that each of them is equally applicable to everyone and everything you see. Transfer of training and true perception does not proceed as does transfer of training of the world. If true perception has been achieved in connection with any person, situation, or event, total transfer to everyone and everything is certain. On the other hand, one exception held apart from true perception makes its accomplishment anywhere impossible. There is no such thing as a discrete or focused attack. We cannot go out and... Uh, Here's the neighbor's child out there, and he's just made our child cry, and we can't hug and, and love our child and attack the neighbor's child at the same time. It will not happen. Our child will not feel love. There is no such thing as a discreet attack. Likewise, there's no such thing as a discreet love. Love just one person. Love just believes. Love anything, and that love immediately blankets everything in your experience. <coughs> love and fear are total. We are either choosing one or the other. Now, we may think that some forms of fear are desirable, and obviously we all still think some forms of fear are desirable, although that differs among people as to what they think is desirable. But when we choose fear, there's no peace of God. And when we choose the peace of God, there simply isn't any fear. And so we're, it's, it's as if we're in a light show, and there's this going on and going off as we go through the day. We love a little and attack a little, love a little and attack a little, so forth. And, and, and the point that most people are at is that they have not yet seen that there's a difference between love and attack. That one offers them everything, and the other one offers them nothing. Because they think there's value in both, love and attack. Transfer of training and true perception does not proceed as does the transfer of the training of the world. Because in the training of the world, we think we learn this one little thing, and it may be applied to something that's almost exactly like it, Hopefully that will repeat itself. So what have we learned? We've learned that we don't like squash. And someone has just put squash on our plate. Are we going to try it? Do we know how it's been prepared? Oh, no. We've transferred that lesson because we want eight squash and we don't know that this squash has been prepared completely different. Talking like ads, differently. <laughs> we don't like uh, cocktail parties because we once went you know what I once carried an umbrella and a raincoat around I carried a raincoat around in my suitcase everywhere I went because I was rained on once <laughs> 
So for years, every time I was on a plane, I made sure that there was a raincoat in there and one of those little umbrellas, you see. I never used it. That was, that's the way the world transfers knowledge, you see. It's learned this lesson. Gail and I woke up one night and realized that a very long yellow and black centipede had been in our bed for about two hours. It had fallen on Gail's face from the ceiling. She had brushed it off thinking it was one of those fake scorpions. You know, the little scorpions that look like scorpions, but they run around real fast. Whereas the real scorpions, they are very macho. And they just, well, I mean, they move real slowly. And she thought, well, that's what that must have been. But she realized it was heavier than that. And then about an hour later, I heard her, you know, I felt her jerk or something, and I went back to sleep. And uh, then I woke up, and I said, a centipede has just pinched my toe. I don't know how I knew it was a centipede, but somehow I knew it was. He hadn't stung it. He just must have been looking at those things for a long time, you know, and reached out to see what that was. And I threw off the covers, and there was about that big yellow and black centipede. Well, being on a spiritual path, I ran to get a jar. You know, you don't you'll kill centipedes, you know, when you're on a spiritual path. <laughs> And, uh, and, and, uh, Gail was, was, uh, not a little bit upset that I left her in the bed by the <laughs> And by the time I got back, there was no sympathy. It wasn't going to sit around there and wait for me to get a car. And so we turned the place upside down. We turned every piece of furniture and on and on. This went on for, what, an hour and a half, two hours or something like that. And uh, moved John into the uh, another room of the house and on and on. And then, finally, we sat down and prayed. And the answer was, the centipede didn't bite you. He's gone. <laughs> but that was the lesson we tried to learn. We acted as if the centipede was dangerous. Actually, the centipede hadn't hurt anybody. That's the only lesson, really, that there was to learn, but that's not the lesson we tried to teach ourselves. That was, what, two years ago? Never seen that centipede again. It's probably got a big family. <laughs> <laughs> the only general rules to be observed throughout, then, are, first, that the exercises be practiced with great specificity, as will be indicated. This will help you to generalize the ideas involved to every situation in which you find yourself and to everyone and everything in it. Second, be sure that you do not decide for yourself that there are some people, situations, or things to which the ideas are inapplicable. This will interfere with transfer of training. So it's just the opposite. God's laws apply to everything under all situations. So we actually end up treating our children as well as we do the stranger on the street. 
which most, most of us have not done most of our lives. We treat the stranger on the street much better than we treat our children. And we think somehow we're supposed to treat our children differently than someone in need. The very nature of true perception is that it has no limits. It is the opposite of the way you see now. The overall aim of the exercises is to increase your ability to extend the ideas you will be practicing to include everything. This will require no effort on your part. The exercises themselves meet the conditions necessary for this kind of transfer. Some of the ideas the workbook presents you will find hard to believe, and others may seem to be quite startling. This does not matter. You are merely asked to apply the ideas as you are directed to do. You are not asked to judge them at all. You are asked only to use them. It is their use that will give them meaning to you and will show you that they are true. Remember only this. You need not believe the ideas. You need not accept them. You need not even welcome them. Some of them you may actively resist. None of this will matter or decrease their efficacy. But do not allow yourself to make exceptions in applying the ideas the workbook contains. And whatever your reactions to the ideas may be, use them. Nothing more than that is required. And so that last point corrects another mistake that I believe we've all made. We think that belief must come first. First, you've got to believe. Then, if you believe, you can do it. You've got to believe before you can heal. You've got to believe that this person is worthy of love before you can love them. <clears throat> You've got to believe that the day is beautiful before you can see the beauty in the day. Not so. Just the opposite. You must begin before you believe. Unless you begin first, there will be no belief. <clears throat> So what happens is that, first of all, we only hear the words of truth. That's all. They don't mean anything to us in the beginning. We just have the words. We have uh, this intellectual or theoretical construct, whichever it may, whatever it may be. And this changes gently as we go along. So we hear the words, you look straight at Christ and do not see him. We hear the words that when we are with another person, we are in a potential state of prayer. That God himself stands before us. There's no evidence of this. Our body's eyes don't tell us that. All the judgments we have about people with this kind of chin, or these kind of clothes, or talking in this manner, tells us 
This certainly is not anything holy. This is not my Savior who stands before me. Our body's ears and our body's eyes do not tell us that. But we begin, we begin simply with the words, with the concept. Before me is the child of God. Before me lies my way home. How many people do I meet during the day? That's how many opportunities I have to return home. It doesn't matter that I've just thrown one away. It matters whether or not I will now make an effort to accept this opportunity before me and see Christ in this person. And so we simply begin. That's how this church, if you want to call it, happened. I was meditating one night and um, I heard you and Lester are to begin a church. And I thought, well, the Holy Spirit indeed has a sense of humor. And I laughingly told this to uh, Mary Lou and Carol and they thought, gosh, that's a great idea. And they started looking for places. And then there was all the questions, well, what do you do? You've got to organize first to have a church. I asked about that, and the answer was, no, just do it. So this whole idea was only, what, just a couple of weeks ago. We had this crazy thought. So we've just begun. But that's what they've been telling us. You just begin. You don't have to have faith. You don't have to know how it's going to turn out. Just do it. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. And all of these things will be added unto you. Just begin. We look at this person as if he or she were Christ. We look at this day as if God had indeed blessed it. We look at this turn of events in our life. How awful it may appear does not matter. We look at it as if it is a gentle step toward the peace of God. As if God knew what he was doing by this thing we are going through right now. And we say, now wait just a minute. Maybe I don't have to judge this as a curse. Maybe this is a gentle transition into a phase of life that will offer me more freedom and more joy and more peace than I've known. That's what I've been told. Let me see if I can approach it that way. This is Lesson 188 from the workbook. It is entitled... The peace of God is shining in me now. Why wait for heaven? Those who seek the light are merely covering their eyes. The light is in them now. Enlightenment is but a recognition, not a change at all. Light is not of the world, 
Yet you who bear the light in you are alien here as well. The light came with you from your native home and stayed with you because it is your own. It is the only thing you bring with you from him who is your source. It shines in you because it lights your home and leads you back to where it came from and you are at home. This light cannot be lost. Why wait to find it in the future or believe it has been lost already or was never there? It can so easily be looked upon that arguments which prove it is not there become ridiculous. Who can deny the presence of what he beholds in him? It is not difficult to look within, for there all vision starts. There is no sight, be it of dreams or from a truer source, that is not but the shadow of the scene through inward vision. There perception starts, and there it ends. It has no source but this. The peace of God is shining in you now, and from your heart extends around the world. It pauses to caress each living thing and leaves a blessing with it that remains forever and forever. What it gives must be eternal. It removes all thoughts of the ephemeral and valueless. It brings renewal of all tired hearts and lights all vision as it passes by. All of its gifts are given everyone, and everyone unites in giving thanks to you who give and you who have received. The shining in your mind reminds the world of what it has forgotten, and the world restores the memory to you as well. From your salvation radiates with gifts beyond all measure, given and returned. To you, the giver of the gift, does God himself give thanks. And in his blessing does the light in you shine brighter, adding to the gifts you have to offer to the world. The peace of God can never be contained. Who recognizes it within himself must give it. And the means for giving it are in his understanding. He forgives because he recognized the truth in him. The peace of God is shining in you now and in all living things. In quietness is it acknowledged universally. For what your inward vision looks upon is your perception of the universe. Sit quietly and close your eyes. The light within you is sufficient. It alone has power to give the gift of sight to you. Exclude the outer world and let your thoughts fly to the peace within. They know the way. For honest thoughts untainted by the dream of worldly things outside yourself, 
become the holy messengers of God himself. These thoughts you think with him. They recognize their home, and they point surely to their source, where God the Father and the Son are one. God's peace is shining on them, but they must remain with you as well, for they were born within your mind as yours was born in God's. They lead you back to peace from where they came, but to remind you how you must return. They heed your father's voice when you refuse to listen, and they urge you to gently accept his word for what you are, instead of fantasies and shadows. They remind you that you are the co-creator of all things that live. For as the peace of God is shining in you, it must shine on them. We practice coming nearer to the light in us today. We take our wandering thoughts and gently bring them back to where they fall in line with all the thoughts we share with God. We will not let them stray. We let the light within our minds direct them to come home. We have betrayed them, ordering that they depart from us. But now we call them back and wash them clean of strange desires and disordered wishes. We restore to them the holiness of their inheritance. Thus are our minds restored with them, and we acknowledge that the peace of God still shines in us and from us to all living things that share our life. We will forgive them all, absolving all the world from what we thought it did to us. For it is we who make the world as we would have it. Now we choose it to be innocent, devoid of sin, and open to salvation. And we lay our saving blessing on it as we say, the peace of God is shining in me now. Let all things shine upon me in that peace, and let me bless them with the light in me. <laughs>